Uh, sorry, I've been a little uh, tied up. Well, a little tied up is, a, is an understatement. <laughs> I've been a little tied up with the uh, Cantonese congregation over the last few months. Uh, it's been five months that I have not been here at the EP service, but I want you to know that I really miss being in your midst. So thank you for this opportunity. All right, so do you know, okay, for those of us who have the privilege of seeing, 80% of our memories are determined by what we see. Seeing is such a big part of everyday life that it actually requires about half of the brain to get involved. Our eyes are very wonderful creations. Each eye is composed of more than two million working parts and more than one million nerve fibers con connecting each eye to the brain, which at present time we are unable to reconstruct those con connections. And hence, no eyeball transplant is possible as of now. And I'm, well, all I'm trying to say is that our seeing is such a real privilege and a gift from our God, the Creator. But are we using this gift to its fullness? When we use our eyes to see this world, how much and how wide and how deep do we see? For instance, when, when our spouse or our mother makes a delicious meal for us, we might just see some edible substance that can fill our stomach. But if we pay more attention and be more observant, maybe we can also see the skills, the experience, the thoughtfulness, the care, and also the love in it. If we really look closer to the dishes that were prepared for us, it doesn't just fill our stomach. It also nurtures our soul and strengthens our relationships. This is how we should also see the world. When we see things, how do our sights nurture our soul and strengthen our relationship with our Creator God? You know, in the ancient world, people saw the world in a totally different way compared to us right now. When I said ancient world, I do mean the, the world in biblical times, including the Old Testament Israelites and also the New Testament Greek-Roman culture. The biggest difference between ancient people and us is the concept of natural phenomena. We in the modern world see many things as natural phenomena. Things like sunrise, sunset, tidal changes, and even the solar eclipse, which is going to take place in maybe a week or so, are all natural phenomena. But this concept was foreign to the ancient world. In the ancient world, everything is connected to God or gods. Everything is an extension of the gods. God rules the world in a very proactive manner. There's no distinction between natural or supernatural because it assumes that the natural was not God's active management. So in the ancient world, when you see the sun, you think of a sun god. You see the moon, the moon god. The sun rises because the sun god is going to work. When sun sets, 
it means that his shift is over and the moon god is taking over. When what we see nowadays as natural phenomena was seen as a collaborative work of many gods in the ancient world. Other than the ancient Israel, most other cultures held this polytheistic, like many gods, worldview. However, this concept of everything that being an extension of the gods came under threat in the 15th century AD when one thing was invented and one discovery was made. People's worldview began to change significantly. This invention was telescope and this discovery was gravitational force. In 1609, Italian scientist Galileo improved the then unsophisticated version of telescope and made it into a powerful one, people began to be able to see what the sun, the moon, and other stars really look like. They found that these celestial bodies were in fact not that special and can be seen quite up close. There's no God there. And then they genuinely believe that if they kept on improving their telescope, maybe one day they can see, you know what they, would, they think they would be able to see? Heaven. One day they would be able to see heaven from the telescope. And then in about 80 years' time after Galileo, Newton discovered gravitational forces while sitting under a tree and got hit by a fallen apple. And we thank God that it wasn't a durian. Not that I like it. Before, before that, most people still thought that the world was being held in the place uh, and is, is in place uh, by God's hand. But after Newton, this concept was totally dismissed. And the concept of natural phenomenon became the dominant principle. But one thing that both Galileo and Newton likely never thought of was that after all these inventions and discoveries, God had become marginalized in people's daily lives. When people see things, they would no longer see God's presence anymore. So whether it was the ancient polytheistic worldview or the modern atheistic no-God worldview, we never seem to get the picture right. But we thank God that he has revealed to us what is the true worldview from the Bible. The world works not because of the collaborative effort of many gods and not because of merely natural phenomenon, but by the gracious and amazing work of one true God. So today, I would like you to join me in appreciating and praising the wonderful work of our God by reciting and studying a beautiful psalm, Psalm 104. And now I'm going to ask uh, Charlotte to begin to read this half of this psalm. It's pretty long, so just read one verse 1 to 18 to us. Thank you. You can follow on the screen or in your pew Bibles. Um, psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. 
and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fires his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. And at the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys, to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens humans' hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nest. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. Thank you, Charlotte. After reading uh, God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this beautiful song and that you have preserved through so many years and now we have the privilege to recite and also to study. So we ask that your spirit will guide us, that we will take each word seriously and that your revelation from this psalm will transform us so that we see what you see and we appreciate what you have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm, Psalm 104, is a song of creation in which the psalmist praises God for what he has created and continues to create. But before he prays, his praises begin, he made known to us one hard fact, which is that praising God might not be something that we would naturally do. The main difference between praising God and thanksgiving is that in thanksgiving, we have personally experienced God's grace. Whether it is saving us from trouble or granting us some special favors. Praising God, on the other hand, is not related to our own condition or circumstance. Thanksgiving, after all, is just a response to favors we have received Praises, on the other hand, come about only for God being who He is. It's not easy, is it? Even the psalmist thinks it's not easy. So in the first line he said, Praise the Lord my soul. This is a strange line to say. Because the psalmist is essentially talking to himself. Or even appealing to himself. You know, human beings are pretty special in this sense. We can, metaphorically, jump out from ourselves and talk back to ourselves, or in this line, to our soul. This is a repentance mechanism that God has installed in us, that we can jump out from our own self-centeredness and examine ourselves from God's perspective. And then we can call ourselves, Praise the Lord, my soul. As we, as we learn to praise God, we are to learn to depart 
from our own self-oriented attitude. From it's about us and for us, to it's about God and for God. From clinging to my own desire, to focusing on God's name and God's will. Why do we neglect to praise God? Or worse, that we became so used to complaining almost about, like, complaining about almost anything that we're not pleased with. Why? Well, I think it's because we sometimes see ourselves too important. We see ourselves more important than God. That we would judge God by our own circumstance instead of interpreting our circumstance through God's eyes. Human beings have this capacity to self-inflate. We tend to see ourselves more important than we should be. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes is full of wisdom. He said that we are all under the sun, which essentially means that we are all pretty small, even compared to the sun, let alone compared to the maker of the sun. In some oriental religions, it is called letting go of desires. In Buddhism or Taoism, both recognize that our clinging to our desires is a source of suffering because we don't always get what we want. And as a matter of fact, we usually don't get what we want. So that's why they practice a desireless living. But in Christianity, we too talk about letting go of our desires. But unlike Buddhism and Taoism, we don't talk about desireless living. We desire something else. Just as Paul said in Philippians, he said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. Like I let go of my desires. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So that, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So yes, we are called to let go of our desire, our self-centeredness. But then we decide something, or more precisely, someone else, which is Lord Jesus. So the psalmist called himself, Praise the Lord my soul. Learn to praise God. Then you will learn that this God we praise is a God who gives, but also a God who takes away. It is a God of sunshine, but also a God of storm, just like the lyrics of the second song, Sovereign. And when our mindset is adjusted and focusing on God, then our worldview will be transformed. We will see the world differently. This is exactly what happened to the psalmist, as he continues to say. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on on the waters. He makes the clouds like chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. Here the psalmist teaches us one thing. is that praising God requires our imagination. The psalmist here is not talking about a bunch of theological propositions. He's only showing us how to appreciate the greatness of God. 
In fact, I think he is quite a romantic person. But he sees the sky, the light, the rain, the clouds, the wind, etc. But he doesn't just see natural phenomena. What the psalmist sees are things that we see every day when you go out. We can see every, you know, all these things. But do we see what he saw? Do we really see it? And here I'd like to share with you a few pictures. The first one, it's, uh, I've taken it uh, about a month ago, two months ago, in Richmond, uh, this is River Road, this is near the dike, uh, on a June uh, evening during sunset. It's beautiful, isn't it? Not about, not, I'm not saying my skill is, is good, but this is just beautiful here. What do you see? If you, if you ask the psalmist, he would say that he saw the beautiful, when he saw the beautiful color of the sky, he saw God's clothes and his garment with splendor and majesty. Do you see that here? Let's see the second picture. This is the picture I took when I was on a plane. And, and uh, I don't think the psalmist could do that. Uh, and it was taken on a plane over a layer of cloud during sunset. It was a couple of years ago. But for the psalmist, he would tell you that he saw the tent of God that stretched out the heaven. Do you see that? Let's see the next picture. This one, I Google. Okay? It's a thunderstorm and, and pouring rain. What do you see? The psalmist would see the beams of God's upper chamber on their waters. What is that? In the ancient world, it's believed that there is a layer of water above the sky. Otherwise, where did the rain come from? But the water would not fall down to flood the world, like what happened in Noah's time, because God's chamber and its beams sustaining it and keeping the water in place. So when the psalmist saw the rain, he saw God's protection. The last picture. This is a cloud taken by my wife. This is a pretty cute one. What do you see? Well, not, not cotton candy and definitely not meatballs. If you ask the psalmist, he would tell you he saw God's chariot. It's God's BMW or Tesla. The psalmist wanted to teach us that as people of God, we don't just do Bible studies or memorize scriptures, although those are necessary and underrated. We need to do more of those, okay? But we also need to do field trips. So having looked around the world, the psalmist has got great insight from God's creation. He continues to say, you cover it, the earth, with the watery depths as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. And at the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flow over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. Here the psalmist recounts the account in Genesis 1, where the initial creation begins. In the beginning, if you remember, darkness was over the surface of the deep. That's Genesis 1, second verse. Which is equivalent to what the psalmist described as covering the earth with watery depths. This is a pre-creation condition. 
You see, this water was initially a destructive force. It covers the earth so no life comes out from it. That's why it was formless and empty. It's anti-life. But God commanded the water that caused chaos to the earth to flee. At the sound of God's thunder, the water took to flight, and then the mountains emerged. This, this is no exaggeration. You know, the highest point on earth right now is Mount Everest, in the mountain range of Himalaya. But in such a high elevation, marine fossils were found. Tons of them. Not that people eating sushi up there, but it was ancient, long time, millions of years ago. Also, the height, the height of Himalaya is still growing every year. Not by a lot, but five millimeter on average. So it's something that we can take pride of because our fingernails actually grow faster than Himalaya. Okay then, the psalmist said a line after this that is worthy of our attention. He said in verse 9, You set a boundary they, the water, cannot cross. Never again will they, the water, cover the earth. This water, which was initially a destructive force, an anti-life force, is now restricted by a boundary that God has drawn up. What's interesting here is that even though this water was anti-life, was destructive, God did not remove it entirely. God did not get rid of it. God retained it here, but with two amazing conditions. First, God set a boundary for it. In other words, God has limited the destructiveness of water. But water still can be destructive. Think about tsunami. But, but the tidal changes every day, which seems just just natural phenomenon. It is, in fact, God's bountiful provision and protection. The second, second condition. Not only did God set a boundary for water, He also transformed it from a destructive and anti-life force into life-giving and life-giving streams and springs. The psalmist continues to say after this, He, God, makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. He waters the mountain from his upper chamber. Rain, the land, is satisfied by the fruit of his world. The psalmist did a marvelous job in describing God's wonderful world. God did not get rid of the destructive water, but he transformed it into something that gives and sustains life. You know, in our lives, we would always want God to take away anything that's destructive to us. In our prayer, we always ask God to bless us, to protect us, to guide us. But maybe deep down, we have equated God's guidance with safety, security, or even prosperity. When we seek God's blessing and guidance, are we just basically asking Him to keep all those destructive forces away from us? Just give us a smooth life? But God doesn't work that way. From God's perspective, those destructive forces in life can be transformed. 
in His gracious hand into something that can nurture our soul and build up our lives. Just like Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said that he was given a thorn in his flesh that made him suffer greatly. We don't know what it was. Maybe some form of eye deficiency. And then he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Just get rid of it. But then Jesus told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That destructive form that made Paul suffer, God did not take away. But God transformed it to be something that caused Paul to rely more faithfully on Jesus. Just like the psalmist who marveled at God's magnificent creation. And from it, he became more submissive to God's sovereignty and God's wisdom. The destructive water can be life-sustaining, can become life-sustaining streams. A giant waterfall, which could be destructive too, can generate tons of power. Fire can burn down forests, but can also keep us warm. In fact, we might even have people in our lives that seem to be hostile to us. But they could also help us to be more patient, more merciful, or maybe even more forgiving. So now, since God has set a boundary for the water and turned destructive water into life-sustaining streams, the psalmist continues to say, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food for the, for the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The psalmist here is providing an extension to Genesis 1. Psalmist is offering us an appendix to the initial creation account. In Genesis 1, we learn that God created the universe in six days and then rested on the seventh day. Now the psalmist is saying that even though God took the seventh day to rest, God does not cease to create. Rather, God, con God continues His creation project up to this very day. This continuous creation is demonstrated by God's transforming the destructive water into life-sustaining streams so that grass will grow, plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. The psalmist's choice of words here is very uh, insightful. He said that food we eat do not just satisfy our belly. It also sustains our hearts. Now, this is deep, right? But for psalmist's transformed worldview, he can see God's footprints in almost anywhere. And as a result, he is no longer driven only by physical desires. He takes every opportunity to nurture his soul and his spiritual needs. Even a small bite of food can connect him with the almighty maker of the universe. Also, the psalmist does not only look at the big picture of the world. He also pays attention to little details. He continues to say, You bring darkness, it becomes night. And all the bees of the forest crawl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, 
to their labor until evening. Here, the psalmist described God as a master taking care of his pets. The animal world is, is in fact, a big food chain, which is mostly considered as cruel and merciless, survival of the fittest. You win if you have a sharper teeth. But that's not how the psalmist sees the food chain. He said that all the bees, including the lions, are all fed by God's gracious hand. I mean, we can appreciate how God feeds the lions unless God is using you to feed them. I've heard a story that goes like this. There's a guy who is adventuring in the wild. Then, of course, he runs into this big, hungry lion. Well, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus can feed the lion with two fish and five bread. But he can't. (laughs) So he runs. But this is futile. Because the lion has four legs and runs faster. So knowing that he cannot escape, this guy kneels down and prays to God. And what else can he do, right? So he closes his eyes and prays. But after a while, nothing happens. He kind of senses that the lion stops approaching him. So he opens his eyes a little bit and takes a peek. To his amazement, he saw the, lions, the lion also praying. This is a miracle, right? I mean, he's so relieved. After all, how scary can a praying lion be, right? But then he heard the words utter out from the lion's mouth as, he, as it prays. He says, Lord, I give thanks to you for the food in front of me. Bless the food so that I have good health after eating. Well, you can finish the story for me. The lion looked for food from God. After looking up the sky and looking down the earth, the psalmist turned to the sea. He says, There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and leviathans, which you form to frolic there. When the psalmist looked at the sea, he doesn't just see seafood. He also mentions ships. He doesn't distinguish between what's natural and what's man-made. Everything is God-made. His point here is that humans, as humans, we are in fact cohabiting with other creatures in the world. We are in fact sharing this creation realm with other creatures. Previously, he said that he would he, he, he said that we share the time with other beasts, that we work in daytime, and the bees come out at night to find food. I mean, you can go out and work at night, but you become part of the food chain. But he's saying that humans' ships are sharing the ocean with other things like lobsters, Alaskan king crabs, sockeye salmon, bluefin tuna, and even the leviathan. What is it? A leviathan is not a kind of sushi. It is, in fact, the name of the sea monster, which is the embodiment of evil in the Old Testament time. Even the big sea monster is sharing the sea with mankind. We do not own the world. We merely are granted privilege to cohabit in it with other creatures made by God. Okay, after seeing the sky then the earth and then the sea, all these observations have transformed the psalmist's worldview. 
Remember at the beginning, the psalmist had to call himself to praise God, saying, praise the Lord my soul. Praising God was not a natural thing for him. He couldn't set this God-praising mode at his, at his default mode. But now, after seeing around God's creation, looking at the rain, the stars, looking at the animals, looking at the sea, the psalmist thinks that he is getting into this new default mode, which is oriented in giving praises to God. He said, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. The psalmist here made a wish and a vow. He wishes that God's glory endures forever and God rejoices in His works. This is the title of the sermon. God rejoices in His own works. Of course, God always rejoices in His own works. In Genesis 1, God used seven, the word good seven times to comment on His creation works in six days. Only one day that the word good is not found. Do you know which day? It's the second day, which is equivalent to Monday. Even God cannot call Monday good. But if there is no good mentioned on the second day, there must be other days that have more than one good. There are actually two days. But this is this one day, which not only has two goods, but that one of them is actually very good. Do you know which day now? I'm sure you know. It's the sixth day, which is equivalent to our Friday. So Friday will be double good. Not for pastors though. Weekends are busy as time. <laughs> okay, other than wishing God rejoices in his own work, the psalmist also made a vow. He vows that he will sing to the Lord all his life and he will sing praises to God as, as long as he lives. The psalmist is basically saying that his default mode has now changed to a God-praising mode. He sets two principles here of praising God. First, it's never ceasing. It's all his life. Second, praising God does not depend on our circumstances. It simply is not right to praise God only when our lives are going well. He vows that as long as he lives, he will praise God. God, good times, bad times, in season, out of the season, God is worthy of our praises. Sometimes we might criticize too much and praise too little. Maybe we need to, to practice praising by writing our own psalm of praise. Well, yesterday was my uh, 16th anniversary of my wedding. And it was interesting that I had to officiate a wedding yesterday. What a day. But in an anniversary, it might be a good idea to write a card with something, probably not just a text, to your spouse. And if you do that, would you just copy and paste what you wrote last year? I mean, you might get away if your spouse is absent-minded, but not mine. You know, for our friends, family, and spouse, we need to discover a new quality in him or her so that our praises to them will not become old 
and stale. If we should do this to our fellow humans, how much more should we do this to our gracious and loving God? The psalmist looks around the whole world and his worldview got transformed. His default mode is now set on God-praising mode. Where should we look if we want to transform our default mode? Surely we can go out and look around, but now I would all, I'd like you all to look forward. Set sight on the table in front of us and to the Lord's Supper that we are about to partake. Without the salvation of Jesus, our praises to God will only stay unheard. Without the sacrificial atonement of Jesus, our prayer to God will be futile. But because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we do not just praise God for as long as we live, because eternity, eternal life, is already ours. And we can look forward to one day that we can offer God unceasing, unending praises. So at this moment, let us celebrate what Jesus has done for us by coming before the Lord's table, receive the bread and the cup in remembrance of Him. The Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in, re- in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So let us all pray before receiving the bread and cup. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for you have placed the stars in the universe. You have formed the earth to allow habitation. You have made a sea that marine lives can be nurtured. But most of all, we praise you for what you have not, for you, for you have not chosen to condemn us because of our sins. But rather you chose to redeem us to a point that it costs you the life of your only Son, Jesus. As we come before the Lord's table, help us to not just remember what Jesus has done for us, but also transform us, so that we would live a life that would always praise your faithfulness, mercy, and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.